Kia I'm Maria. I'm Māori and Pākehā. And I'm Kate, and I'm Iranian-Australian. And you're listening to Being Biracial. The podcast all about navigating the world as a mixed-race person. Ooh, different, unusual. We want to acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on the unceded sovereign lands of the Boonwurrung and Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We offer our respect to Elders past, present and those yet to come. And we also acknowledge traditional custodians from the lands wherever you're listening to this podcast. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today we are going to be chatting to Mina Singh about being biracial. Mina Singh is a Yorta Yorta and Indian woman born and living on the lands of the Kulin people. She has over 20 years of experience in legal practice, systemic advocacy, policy consulting and training and she currently is the Commissioner for Aboriginal Children and Young People. And we're so, so, so grateful to have you in the studio with us today. Mina actually wrote a really beautiful podcast review for us, um, which at a time when we were very stressed and overwhelmed by this insane process that we're going through, was really, really lovely. And that was our first interaction. And now here you are on the (laughs) podcast. Welcome, Mina. Thank you. (laughs) So we always kick off. By asking, what's your mix? What are you? Where are you from? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm Yorta Yorta from my mother's side, so yeah. Aboriginal, um, and Indian from my father's side, Indian via Fiji. Fijian Indians? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. So this is me pulling on a thread that is hanging in the back of my brain. Is that a colonisation, mm. indentured labour mm. vibe? Yeah, yeah. So basically... When slavery officially ended, um, then things switched to indentured labourers, which is just basically slavery with a time limit. Um, and so with the British being in India uh, around the turn of the century, so not the recent century, the century before <laughs> the 1900s, <laughs> oh God. Um, so lots of Indians were being sent all over the world basically to British colonies to work as indentured labourers slash slaves. And so my grandfather was 10 years old when he and his parents went from uh, India, Jaipur was where he was born, and came to Fiji, um, as lots of Indians were, people, Indians were doing. Um, horrific conditions of travel and then horrific conditions of arrival and treatment um, by effectively slave owners. Mm. Um and, yeah, that's how um, Fiji has such a significant Indian population. It's like a soft rebrand, isn't it? They're like, ha-ha, it's not slavery anymore. No, you're an indentured labourer. Like <laughs> yeah, like you – yeah, it's rubbish, yeah. <laughs> and then how did your dad end up in Australia? Um, so lots of sort of – I guess lots of people would sort of send their – one of their kids sometimes to New Zealand or to Australia or something to earn money and, you know, support the family back home. So 
usually it was the oldest in the family, but my dad's the third oldest and he was the one who was sent. It was kind of sent, like, like you know, they – yeah, anyway, he, he came to Australia, came to Melbourne. Um, he'd had a few trips to um, Australia before he actually properly settled. Um, yeah, so that would have been early 1960s that, yeah, he was in Australia, yeah. And what was he doing here in Australia? He did everything. He in Fiji he worked as a taxi driver. I'm not I don't think he did that here in Australia. Um I know that he worked at a petrol station like oh, like doing night shifts and stuff. Um just anything he could get his hands on basically. Yeah. But um there was a few of them like friends and such that came over from the same village. And quite a few of them went to university and stuff and he lived with them. And so, like, he grew up in, like, share houses in Carlton and stuff. And it's like, what? Like, that's not the dad I know. <laughs> I can't imagine. Tell us about mum. Where's where's Yorta Yorta country? So Yorta Yorta country is up around Echuca Shepparton Way, both sides of the Murray River. Um, when you have those double-barreled names that, that references it, People are on both sides of the river, so like yorta yorta, muddy muddy, like all along the river. Um, so mum was born in Truka and uh, her parents um, were very young when she was born and mum had a sort of growing up where she was handed around from lots of different relatives to basically not be stolen. Um, so she grew up um, always with family, always with lots of different relatives and stuff. Um, sometimes with her mum, sometimes her dad you know, came and visited her and stuff, but um, very much growing up around with lots of different relatives in in northern Victoria, so Echuca, Shep, grew up partly on the Marupna Flats, which is where um, a lot of Aboriginal people went after the Cummeragunja walk-off in the 1930s when basically conditions were so bad on the Cummeragunja mission that Aboriginal people said we'd much rather take our chances just living on riverbanks basically. And so, you know, she... she Grew up partly there, grew up in parts of, of New South Wales. And then when she was about, I think, 12, 11, 12, she kind of officially became a ward of the state and um, was brought up, uh, was a foster child to her auntie cousin, auntie Molly Dwyer, who was instrumental in setting up the Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency. So, um, so she always grew up with family and with culture around her, which you know, is what I think makes her so strong and um, amazingly not bitter. Um, You know, she has amazing empathy and understanding for what her mother went through and, you know, what she saw relatives go through and such. And, um, yeah, so my parents met in the great melting pot, that's Melbourne, (laughs) Um. Like when I was a kid, I was always like, "How did these two people get together? Like, there are two people who should—if any people who should not be together—it's these two. And so it always amazed me. Like, um, but basically, they just—you know—Mum would always say, "Well, all the black and brown people would just hang out together in Melbourne, like at the same places and stuff." And Melbourne back then in the sixties, like, you know, Melbourne was a proper port town with ships coming in and out, and you know, people getting off the boat, staying, you know, sometimes mm. longer than they should have and stuff. So, um, yeah, yeah, just lots of, you know, lots of mixed relationships and such. Yeah. 
I feel like it's an unusual mix. Yeah. So growing up, certainly I didn't know anyone like me, but further north you go, like up top end and like Darwin and Queensland and stuff, there's heaps of, of mixed marriages between Aboriginal people or Indians or Aboriginal and Chinese or like lots of different, um, yeah, cultures, other other black and brown cultures marrying with Aboriginal people and stuff. And I hear it more and more, oh, yeah, there's an Aboriginal family named Singh like you yes. know, somewhere else or something. And, and um, yeah, so, you know, we're out there, I guess, you know, as you, you know, the wonders of the internet and stuff, you find out more and more about people. So, yeah, but certainly growing up there was no one like my sisters and I. Yeah. And you mentioned your name. Mm. <laughs> you have mm. an incredibly Indian name. <laughs> <laughs> it is so Indian. <laughs> so my sisters, so my dad named all of us and my sisters have very Anglo names, very white names. I won't say what their names are, but mm. they're very white names. Um, both middle, first and middle names are white names. And when they were born, my parents weren't married. So they had my mother's maiden name. And then when my parents got married, they their surname became Singh. And um, But when I came along, so I'm seven and eight years younger than my older two sisters, and my parents had them before they were married, as I said, and then got married and then had me. So my sister once teased me that they were the, you know, they were the kids that they had when they were young and in love. And then they got married and they thought, oh, we better have a legal one now. <laughs> so that's Brutal. how I came across. <laughs> only, only siblings could. Only siblings. Only cool siblings, like yeah. yeah. Um, so my dad obviously decided that, yep, the world was ready for a full-on <laughs> Indian name. And um, I got Meena Pushpa Singh, which is like maybe should is the equivalent of Mary Polly Smith kind of you know, yeah, in terms yeah. of popularity and commonness. Kate, Kate Robinson. Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I was telling a friend that I'm going to the UK for the first time. I've never been. And I was telling her that I was coming to visit and she was like, what do you mean you miss Kate Robinson? Like the most British sounding name there ever was have never been here. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you – interesting that there's Mm. a difference in names between the siblings, Mm. at least first names, because I imagine that would have had an impact on your experiences of the world. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean it's – so my dad – so Mina comes from his favourite Indian actress, Mina Kumari. Um, who apparently was a very dramatic actress. And then Pushpa is my aunt's, his oldest sister's name. So that's where my names come from. And it was always funny because my when we went to Fiji, I remember my sister's names being Indianized. Like they, they you would none of the relatives would ever <laughs> say their names as they were. There would always be a sort of Indian twist to it. But yeah. my name was obviously already Indian, so you know, I was kind of normal over there. You fit <laughs> in. Funny. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, um, yeah, I think because, you know, people see your name written down and they make an assumption about who you are. Um, and so it's probably, you know, it, it's meant that definitely a lot of other Indian people have seen my name and um, embraced me, I guess. Although I always find it's funny, like, you know, sometimes other Indian people will be, they'll sort of look at me and they'll be like, 
Is she one of us? She's one of us. Mm. Like, is she? Isn't she? And they'll either get two reactions. One will be like total embrace, like, yes, yes, you're one of us kind of thing, you know. And or or it'll be, oh, we don't know about you. You're not quite right. Kind of like there's something a bit off. <laughs> so it's always fun. Like, you know, I know very little Hindi, but it's very fun to kind of pull out a little bit and totally confuse people. <laughs> They're giving me those side eyes, figuring out who I am. But um, in Aboriginal community, you have big families who are known by their surnames and stuff. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, you know, for the, you know, my mum's maiden name is Day and, and um, that's from her mother's side and you know, her father's side is a walker and it's like, oh, you're a Day, you're a walker. Oh, you're connected to the Morgans and the Briggs and, you know, so on and so forth. So I never had that in terms of, you know, having that immediate connection that lots of other people in community do have. Um, so if anything, I've probably always asserted my Aboriginality a lot more because people would just look at my name and assumed that was it. Um, although lots of people have made lots of different assumptions about my identity based on what I look like. Mm -hmm. mm. I can imagine. What names do you use uh, for your mum and your dad? (laughs) So (laughs) mum is mum. My dad's name is the greatest hoax ever pulled in history. Um, so we call my dad Bupa and we spell it B-U-P-P-A. And when I was growing up, I thought that Bapa was a Hindi word for father. Mm-hmm. And I remember getting that trip to Fiji when I was in grade two and thinking, oh, you beauty, I'm going to go somewhere where everyone else calls their dad Bapa and I can... <laughs> Can't bloody wait! Like you're gonna flex. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know a Hindi word. Yeah, 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 yeah. Totally. And because it, it would cause me much embarrassment at primary school because I'd just say mum and papa and like you know get made fun of by kids and whatnot. Um. So got to Fiji, excitedly waiting to see cousins and stuff. And what do they call their dads? Dad, daddy, <gasps> papa. Like everything but Bapa, and I'm thinking, what this is? This is dodge. Like, what is this all about? Like, being scammed. <laughs> I've totally been scammed by this man. Like, what is this word? And then, you know, whatever. And then, you know, years later, with the advent of the internet and stuff, you know, it's funny how many Hindi words we looked up because you know, we grew up with smatterings of, of Hindi words and and Aboriginal words, and looking up all the Hindi words and say, and because the Hindi spoken in Fiji was made up of everyone who'd come from Fiji, from India, from all over the place, come to Fiji and then muddled up lots of things. Mm. So, you know, sort of checking how much carries with, you know, know, high Hindustani or whatever you want to call it. I don't know. (laughs) Um, But um, one of the words I looked up was um, the word for father and found this word Bapu, B-A-P-U. And, so I, so we figured that maybe this was a kind of a version of the word that it had become bapa, um, and that was how it came along. But it's funny because the grandkids call him bapa as well, kind of like he's the godfather, like you know. <laughs> so it's like he's just bapa. And then you know, my sister and I, when sisters and I, when we do something that is remotely like him, we call ourselves the buppets. <laughs> <laughs> Reclaiming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally reclaimed, like, you know, and it's kind of, it's nice. It's, you know, it's this, but it's a total scam. Well, not total scam, but yeah. 
it's funny. I have a tendency to put my hands in my pocket and stand like him. That's that's my buppet. <laughs> <laughs> Which is very funny. That's so cute. I'm wondering about your Indian identity because Fijian Indian, like it's it's called Fijian Indian. They've named themselves Fiji yeah, Indians FBIs, for a reason. Yeah. Fiji-born Indians. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and is there still a huge Indian, like Fijian Indian population in Fiji? Yeah, I mean, when I was growing up, it was always sort of roughly, you know, forty-eight, fifty-two in favour of Indigenous Fijians, kind of thing. But it was a very similar population, and uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, there's been a lot of sort of economic migration and and. Um, just just migration in general. Like mm. most of the cousins that I had in Fiji growing up all now live in Australia or the States. Mm. Um, so Huge diaspora. Yeah, absolutely. Um, mm. So I think, you know, there's the top five communities, you know, that have the biggest diaspora and like Indians are one of those. I guess I'm wondering if you have a connection, like if we think of connection to place. Mm. It, for you... On your dad's side, is that Fiji? Yeah, absolutely. So my dad never had any desire to go to India. Um, My mum would have loved to have gone to India, but my dad had no desire whatsoever. He would regularly go back to Fiji every year. Um, And, you know, I've been to Fiji seven, eight times. Um, The last time my father and I went, it was about 12 years ago, I think, um, which is really special. Um, but whenever I've gone to Fiji, it feels like home. And I have this memory. So the first time I went to Fiji and could kind of comprehend it, I was in grade two, so about what, eight years old. And I remember being in a bank um, with my parents and my sisters and I think we probably would have been cashing like traveller's checks or something like back in the day. And I remember just looking around at everyone and everyone looked like me. Everyone was brown or black. Like, and I just remember thinking, wow, like everyone who works there, everyone who's a customer there, just everyone was looked like me. And I remember this having this profound feeling of, this is where I'm meant to be. And, you know, obviously it's a very special place because, you know, that's where all my aunties and uncles and and cousins, you know, from my dad's side. And it was also a way of trying to understand my dad a bit more because, you know, he's a very difficult, complex man and and to spend some time with, like, his sisters and, um, and try to get to understand him a bit better was very special. But, like, I often say I, you know, I've gone back to Fiji even though I was born in Australia. Like, I often say I've gone back to Fiji Mm. because it just does feel so much like home to me. Why does he have this reluctance, like in terms of having any connection with India? Like what is that? I think think like lots of migrants, they're often looking forward Mm. and often thinking, you know, like when I think about language and my dad didn't teach us any Hindi the only Hindi we would have learnt from my dad were the swear words, like because it's like, oh, that's a special word that you don't say very often, and oh, if I say it, I get a particular reaction, so yeah. I'll just bank that. Um, but it was my mum who we probably learnt Hindi from because she tried to teach herself to communicate with his family. And I remember she used to have little, um, used to have children's books, like you know, sort of 
kids' books that would be filled of pictures of things with words underneath and you use them to keep, teach kids vocabulary, but she would put these little white stickers underneath the words and write them in, in Hindi to try and learn words. And it was also she could, she could communicate with, you know, with his family when she went over there. But also, you know, for her growing up, having the upbringing she, that she did, you know, not being able to grow up completely with her own language and such, you know, language is important. Um, but I think my dad just never taught us his language because he just thought, why would they need it? Um, and in in Australia, he didn't mix with too many other Indian people. And, yeah, I think he just never thought that it was something that we needed. And so, you know, India wasn't part of his history as such, you know. Um, Fiji was his home place. So that was where he was born. That was where his history started. So, and then once he came to Australia, you know, he kept the connections up because he had family still there and such and was always supporting people financially and such and helped relatives migrate over to Australia. But, yeah, just never really had an interest in Fiji. Sorry, in India at all. What was it like when you were growing up if, your dad wasn't bringing a lot of culture aside from those trips to Fiji, which sound amazing. What was your home like when you were growing up? My dad was very strict. So culture was often probably through food. <laughs> um, he's a practicing Hindu, but we never really were raised as that apart from not eating beef, basically. He didn't really pass any of that on to us. Um, yeah, it was – It was in, in that sense, there was a bit of a um, – I don't know, it felt like, I don't know, a bit of an island kind of thing. Like, um, if anything, I think it was our mum who encouraged that. And probably when my cousins migrated to Australia when I was in grade five, was really when I got to sort of really connect with culture, with my Indian culture a lot more. Um, and having them as part of our lives was, was really important. And um, But, yeah, it was interesting kind of he just – he was a difficult man and I think he was very focused on just working and giving us the best possible material life, I think. Mm. That's no, that sounds deep. That, that's a bit shallow. Sorry, rather that it's more like making sure we were set up okay. Like mm. you know, making sure that you know we had a roof over our heads. And you know, my parents worked incredibly hard. You know, education was always the key. You're going to go finish edu- high school, and you're going to go on to university, and you know, that was a given. Even mm. though we knew no one around us who had really been to university, <laughs> mm. um, but that was just an expectation for us. Mm. Um, but, yeah, you know, it, it's interesting as you get older and you realise, you know, the sort of stuff that your parents went through, particularly the racism my parents both mm-hmm. experienced, um, particularly for my dad in the workplace and stuff. Not stuff that he's told me but stuff that he's come home from work and told mum and mum has many, many years later told me. You know, I understand some of how he is, it was, you know, in terms of, you know, dealing with certain things or sharing mm. certain parts of himself, yeah. Keeps it 
secret keeps it safe. Yeah. I feel like yeah. there's we've had a lot of um, instances with our guests over the podcast of their – because we often have people who have white in their mix and mm. I have the same thing. Mm. Um, but my dad, who's Māori, shows love very differently to mm. the way that my mum does and quite often – more often than not, the way that he shows love to me is with material – Goods. Yes. Last time I was in New Zealand, he was like, "Oh, I'm going to buy you a car," and I was like, "I don't live in a New Zealand, <laughs> mate. Like, I don't live here, and I don't need a car, and like, I, you know, can can buy my own car, you know." But he really insisted on buying me a car. He he got like this like secondhand car, and then I just gave it to my brother because I was like, "Hun, like what?" But that was his way of showing me his love, and yeah. I didn't really. I was like so confused and like bamboozled by it, but then like and chatting to all the people that we've talked to, it's quite a common thread yes. that people are showing their love with material goods, yep. especially if they've fought really hard to survive. Yeah, yeah. That provision of, of food, of shelter, of of just things to keep you safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, part of that was, I know for both my parents, just not having access to those things growing up, having really difficult lives. Yeah, and my, you know, my dad's, He'll um, he'll buy. Sorry, that's it's really cute. He'll buy um packets of biscuits like Tim Tams or you know Monte Carlos or something when they're on special because he's very you know <laughs> he's still living in the depression era. <laughs> very careful with his money and um. He'll have them in the cupboard and then he'll check the use-by dates and then he'll parcel them out to us as we visit as little treats. Like he take this home with you, take a packet of biscuits home with you kind of thing. And um, that's his way of showing care because to him that's a treat um, and that's something he would never have grown up with. So, yeah, and being able to, you know, feed us like is such a big thing. I know that sounds so silly. Not silly. It sounds simple, but it really means a lot when you've not had a lot. And um, there's this nice sort of, I think, thread on Twitter and you see it on TikTok and stuff about Asian parents cutting up fruit for you and that's their love language. Like, (laughs) you know, like fruit after dinner is a big thing at my dad's house. And I was in Spain a couple of months ago and was having lunch somewhere and they bought us out mandarins after the dinner. And I was like... Oh, it's like I'm home with my mm. – <laughs> it was a really sweet thing and there's something about cut fruit that's – yeah. Yeah. I And I can't help but think in this, like, as we're talking about your dad, you know, he came to Australia to be a provider and he kind of just kept yeah. – stayed in that role. Yeah, yep. And I think I – yeah, I think he mentally has stayed in that role and he, I think – it has a lot to do with his being so staunchly independent and want, and refusing help, especially as he's getting older. You know, he's 85 now and he is just so terrible to try and help. <laughs> like he's just he's <laughs> the most <laughs> difficult person to give yeah. help to. Um, and, you know, he worries, I know, that if he stops doing something, he might never start it again. Um and I think that's a worry that a lot of people have as they get older and certainly through COVID that was a big eye-opener for me about ageing and what what things like routine mean for people and um, especially as you get older and just how important routine is. Um, but, yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I think being a provider is a big part of his identity and 
you know, yeah, just shapes how he's done lots of things. But it's it's interesting about how you show love because he never said I love you growing up. And I think probably was when uh, the first grandchild came along, my sister's son, um, and there was just such an outpouring of love for him, for this little man. And um, I think it's probably since then that he sort of, we started saying I love you more and now there won't be a phone call where he doesn't say I love you or, you know, when we say goodbye, if I visit it, he will say I love you, and which is really lovely. Whereas my mum very rarely says it and she says sometimes, you know, I wasn't, gro- I didn't grow up with lots of cuddles and hugs and things and, but I remember growing up getting lots of cuddles and being called all sorts of lovely names um, names that reinforced our identity and, you know, my blackest angels and stuff like that. Oh. And, you know, um, but she didn't grow up with that type of love either. Um, so she often doesn't say I love you, but she shows it in so many other ways. How does she show it? Oh, if I stay over and I say to her, don't make my bed, she makes my bed. Like, or <laughs> she washes my clothes. Like, you know, she's... <laughs> it's like, mum, just leave it. Like, because I spent a lot of time with them during COVID and stuff. And um, yeah, or I'd, yeah. Or she did, she's gone into the room and she's like, I washed all your jumpers. Like, oh. <laughs> just stuff like that, you know. Um, or she, you know, she checks in on you and she, you know, if you mention to something, something to her like, oh, I've got to do this, like, couple of days later did you do that thing like she just follows up on on things and remembers yeah 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 it's interesting that you identified your mum as the continuer of even your dad's culture Mm. because that's something that we've talked a lot about just between even the two of us like not even when we think about all the interviews that we've done but the fact that like my mum is the Iranian one Mm. And Maria's mum is the white one. Mm. And somehow in creating this podcast, we seem to always talk about our mums. And one of the things we've been trying to figure out is what, what, why is that? Mm. (laughs) Where does that come from? And how does it, how is it different given, given their mixes, I guess? Yeah. Does Mm. culture travel down the matrilineal? Yeah. 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 Is that, is that the pathway that it follows? Because it seems to be. Mm. coming up a lot yeah it's interesting I did a um a a radio interview for um SBS Hindi um a few years ago and this we talked about this stuff and um you know the interviewer she raised the idea of your mother tongue like that it's you're literally it's the mother's tongue yes we were talking about this the other day um and you know whether it's just that closeness of your as a baby, as a child, to your mother, and that's who you're predominantly spending time with. But you know, um, culturally, you know, for Aboriginal kids, you know, at some stage, boys would start learning from their dads more and, and uncles and such. And um, but yeah, it's it's interesting because I, I used to do um, I used to work at Legal Aid and I used to work do a lot of refugee lawyering, and it was always amazing seeing women who had come from other countries and how quickly they had to engage with the systems of schools and health and education and and 
government and such because if they had kids, they had to make sure that their kids were engaged and stuff. So they were often the ones who were learning more English, learning more about systems and stuff and um, there was just such a different role that they played for their kids in 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 that. Um, that's not necessarily culture but it's it's just the role, the, the centrality of that that mothering role mm. that's really important mm. to identity in mm. lots of ways, yeah. Much earlier in our conversation you were talking about your dad mm. and his experience of racism in Australia and, you know, maybe how he hasn't – maybe he didn't pass that, that information on to you guys or mm. – how that impacted him as a person, mm. I guess. And I'm curious about how your family functioned, like being an Indian, your to your family, mm. whether it was controversial for your parents to be together or how those family units, I guess, conceived each other and this really cool mix that you you guys had as a little family unit. Yeah, Um yeah, I don't think there was controversy. Like, I, <laughs> not like you know, say like with you know a white person marrying a, a person of color or something like that. Um, I just know that my dad's family love my mom, absolutely adore her. Um, just think she's the bee's knees, and I think part of that was because she wanted to learn and connect and and tried and you know to connect and stuff and. Um. I got to go to Fiji with just with mum when I was 17 for about six weeks over summer and, um, oh, my gosh, we had the funnest time because basically our, all our aunties just wanted to spoil mum rotten, you know, they just loved her and, and um, you know, mum is just so willing to get in and get involved and, you know, what are you making? How do you make this? You know, I want it, you know, kind of thing and, and be practising her Hindi and stuff and, um you know, she's, yeah, they, they just adored her. Um, but it's it's really interesting, it was really interesting going to Fiji and visiting family and such and ideas around colour and colourism. And obviously colourism is a big thing in so many communities but it's a big thing in, in with Indian communities about, you know, the, the what beauty is and if you're fair, you're beautiful and if you're dark, you're ugly and all these sorts of crap and whatnot and um you know we grew up grew up with this black identity that we're black and um we go to fiji and our cousins would be like oh you know you're so fair and lovely and we're like what we're black <laughs> <laughs> like this. and i always remember that trip with my mum going into town with one of my cousins and um she put a pair of shorts on but she put a pair of stockings on first and it, we're talking about 33 degrees kind of thing hot like you just like, what are you doing? It's too hot for that. What are you doing? She's like, oh, I don't want to see anyone to see my dark legs. I'm like, what are you talking about? You're like, that's you. you mm. Fuck them. Like, you know, this is what you this is, you know, but, you know, and I remember, you know, as a kid be, visiting Fiji and seeing this product, Fair and Lovely and um, White as Snow kind of thing and, you know, skin bleaching products and, you know, my cousins and aunties would have them and would use them and, um, you know, just, you know, and you see all the representation in like Bollywood films about the, 
you know, the actress and the actor were always fair and they were always a little bit, by Western standards, overweight because if you were fair and you were a bit plump, that meant you had enough food to eat and you didn't have to work out in the sun. So that was a status symbol kind of thing. And then the baddie character in it, because there always had to be a baddie, was always the blackest, the darkest skinned actor you could find, you know. And just you you grew up with these funny little mutterings um, about colour. And so that was a real clash with being black and being proud of being black as an Aboriginal person and – you know, that's – so that was always really an interesting kind of, you know, maybe one of the reasons why my dad's family loved my mum was because they considered her to be fair, you know, and so that was good. So, you know, maybe if she had have been darker than my dad, that might have been frowned upon. So it's funny, that's the first time I've actually thought thought about that, about, Yeah. How did they conceptualise her Aboriginal identity? I think it's evolved over time. Um, It's funny because sort of growing – for my dad growing up, you know, they grew up alongside, you know, Fijian people and stuff and – or went – to school at the same place and whatever, you know. And then I think when the, the military coups happened in the 1980s, a lot of the this, – this is my take. This is by no means a <laughs> legitimate historical take. You know, I was in grade six when the coups happened and stuff. But, you know, my understanding was that the simmering racial tensions that had always been there came to the fore and I really kind of felt a difference. Even, I mean – noticing it from being a carefree little kid. I guess you'd notice less anyway when you're a little kid and you visited Fiji and it was all idyllic. But I remember going back as a 17-year-old and, you know, I'd walked from one auntie's house from the other. It was about 2Ks and everyone was mortified because it was like, what are you doing? The Fijians could get you. And I'm like, what? Like, what What are you all on about? Like there was just absolute racism there. Um and it's funny because in I obviously am Indian, so I identify with Indians, but then I'm Indigenous, so I identified with the Fijians kind of thing. So, <laughs> um, and, you know, I don't know how much they conceptualised it, but I know that, you know, getting older and, you know, with the advent of, say, Facebook and um you know, being able to be connected with all my cousins in different ways and stuff, like their, seeing their support of stuff that, you know, we might post around, say, you know, Sorry Day or NAIDOC Week or Black Lives Matter and kind of stuff and seeing them understand and appreciate that stuff more and more, maybe because part of that comes with them no longer living in Fiji but living in other countries where racial issues are, you know, probably more obvious than where they were. I remember as a kid going to Fiji, you would never see an Indian person married to a Fijian person. That was very rare. And then when I went 12, 13 years ago, I remember seeing lots of mixed marriages and just thinking like, 
Oh, that's really interesting. That's really cool. Days like these, I wonder where I'm going, where I'll be. Is this path I'm holding down, reflecting what I see? And if I wanted to, I should. Tell us about um, your mum when you were growing up. So my mum was a nurse and I remember being so proud that my mum was a nurse, that she had this other identity other than just being my mum. I don't know whether this is because I was a little feminist from the <laughs> age or something, but I just remember being in school one time and like, I don't know, some the teacher was asking, oh, you know, how many kids here do their mums work and have jobs? And there were three of us whose mums were nurses I just remember being so proud that my mum was a nurse and um, she was what was called ger- a geriatric nurse, um, which is now aged care, although they don't have the nurses so much in aged mm. care. The levels have changed and stuff. Um, and she was amazing at her job. Like she would tell us all about her patients and, every, you know, once in a while I'd go visit and meet some of them and such. And, you know, she just had such a care for the patients that she had and – you know, she was very caring and loving. Um, you know, as I said, my dad was very strict, but she and my sisters made my growing up as special as it could be. You know, I'm, you know, i very lucky to have my two big sisters who are my protectors and my carers and my role models and my everythings along with my mum. So, um, but my mum... Uh, went back to uni, well, not went back to uni, went to uni. She only went to like year eight, I think, of, of high school. Um, and, you know, back in back in the day, you, you know, to become a nurse, you trained on the wards and such. And mm. so, you know, it was all hands-on and, you know, that's how you did it. But after about 20, 25 years of nursing, she thought she'd go back and get more formalised with her nurses training and such and, but everything had changed, like it was all book-based, you know, you wouldn't get into a ward until you were in second year or something, you know, just the complete opposite. <laughs> yeah. And she had all this lived experience of, yeah. be, of actually being a nurse. And um, so she ended up going and doing an arts degree and she went uh, she went to Monash University and did a bridging course that was um, at the time called the Monash Orientation Scheme for Aborigines and it was a one-year program that, would basically kind of be an equivalent to a year 12 and it would get you an entry place into um, university. So she did that and she did her arts degree and she was doing her arts degree at – she'd started at uni when I was in year 12 and studying Educating Reader. I don't know if either of you know that play by Willie Russell but it's about a woman who lives in northern England and she's married and she feels very trapped by the life that she has and she decides to enrol in a – a university course to kind of expand her horizons and um, it's about her kind of finding her own identity and such. And um, so mum was kind of like this educating reader model, <laughs> like at the same time of going back to uni and, and finding herself. And so, and then when I started my arts degree at Melbourne, she was doing her arts degree at Monash. So that was incredibly cool having a mother who was going through what you were going through as well. <laughs> That's a bit special. Yeah, it was great. And but she was like a gun student. She was the one who was <laughs> she'd be like, Oh gosh, I finished this at midnight or whatever and she'd get a high distinction for it. Like or she was the one who had read the 
um, the prescribed reading and the recommended read. Like she would read, like she was voracious, like she just took it. Like, and that's, she's where I get my lifelong love of learning. Like she has shown me that age is no barrier, um, that you can always be learning things. Um, there's always knowledge to gain, you know. Yeah, so that's very cool. <laughs> what did she study? So she did uh, she did First Nations history as part of her arts degree and I get a bit blurry because I think, um, you know, early – late teens, early 20s, you're a bit self-absorbed and you're not necessarily <laughs> thinking, what's my mum doing now? Um, but, um, yeah, and she's, you know, worked in, went on to work in the education department and then she went and did, I think, a social work degree and she worked at Ballarat Uni and, um, or maybe not a degree but something. Um, and now she's an uh, elder in residence at Monash University Clayton Campus. Fuck yeah. Yeah. So. What were you studying when you started well, your arts degree? I did – Post-colonial history, race representation, feminist history, yeah. Ah! yeah. So I went, I went from an arts degree that totally <laughs> centred. Yeah, 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 you know, you know, as a fellow lawyer, you go from an arts degree and reading, writing and research from an identity base that centres who you are, you know, where I first came across the term women of colour and was like, that is the term, like that is what I <laughs> – Oh, you got me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. And, and I just loved the power of that term. I just loved the diversity that was inherent in the term. And, and um, yeah, and then I went to do my law degree and went to a space where – you were told your identity was completely irrelevant. Everything is um, from the perspective of your know, law is basically from made by and for well-off white men of mm-hmm. privilege with money to protect their property. <laughs> and um, I was also learning the very tools that had been used to dispossess, you know, my ancestors and mm-hmm. caused so much pain on my families yep. and stuff. So um, I found law a very alienating experience, yeah. Why did you study law? Oh, God. In high school I wanted to be a lawyer um, and then my I, my plan was I'd do a year of arts and then transfer into law but I just loved my art subjects so much and I just – Loved the avenues that it took me and the thinking it took me. And I I, I got into do my honours um, and my original idea was going to be around um, Aboriginal soldiers in World War II um, and representations of race in war and stuff. And I think kind of I got a bit worried that, oh, I'm not going to get a job out of this or what? Am, what is it all going to lead to kind of thing. Mm. And I thought, well, I could do my law degree because, you know, that's what I wanted to do. And I think if someone had a – I had a better than expected year, first year of law. I, I did quite well. and But I think if someone had a tapped me on the shoulder in second year and said, you know, you don't have to finish this. Like, you know, you could, <laughs> you could go back and do your honours – and be much, much happier, <laughs> I would have. But, you know, 
you start something and you think, well, I'm going to finish it, no matter how bloody painful or hideous or alienating it is and, you know, I'm going to pretend for a while like, yeah, absolutely, I'm going to do my articles at a corporate law firm and uh, just, you know, because you, you get kind of indoctrinated into this particular way of thinking um, about what, you know, success means kind of thing. Mm. So, and then when I finished my law degree, I just ran away overseas for a couple of years because I didn't want anything to do with it. Oh, that sounds familiar. Doesn't that cut? <laughs> That's exactly what I did. I did my um, law honours and I did a really interesting topic actually. Mm. Um, I did it with a feminist legal theorist, Margaret Thornton, who is awesome, and I did it from a very non-legal perspective in a way. It was all about family violence legislation in China that was just being developed, but it was looking at a lot of philosophy from – Chinese women philosophers from like 1800s, 1700s and things like that and looking at, yeah. Tied into your Asian studies. Yeah, yeah all You've the things. you been to China. But anyway, yeah, yeah. I had like this incredibly expansive experience in a legal academic framework, which was so different to the entirety of my university experience, mm. which was just about constraining me essentially. Yes, yes. Um, and... It's, I think it's so sad. I th- and I think because there's so the reason I ask like why lawyers because we have just happened to interview a bunch of lawyers in this yeah. Pro- yeah. project. Yeah, we both work in the legal sector. That's what happens. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's just so interesting to me why why we end up in these places that fundamentally try to narrow us and control us and make us into versions of ourselves that are around this idea of a reasonable person, which none mm. of us are. Mm. <laughs> and, yeah, I I wish I could go back in time and tell second-year uni Mina and maybe <laughs> second-year uni Kate, like, oh, cool, there's other options. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I think yeah. also because so many people get into law from, like, this kind of social justice perspective Mm -hmm. and you have this idea of like I just need to get these tools so that then I can do more and actually the tools are flawed Mm. because the system is flawed yes and the system as you say is not set up to be for us yes Mm. yes it's so true and you know I finished I always thought I would never practice but you do yeah you get sides you know, swept along with the momentum of everyone else suddenly like, you know, oh, I've got to put him for this, got to put him for that. And you get all the rejection phone calls and stuff because you don't have, you know, you, you know, maybe worked through your law degree and so you didn't have time for the extracurricular activities that look so brilliant on your resume and, you know, good grades don't happen in a vacuum. Lots of things impact on it and, you know, it it's – so I, I – thought, well, you know, I've got a law degree. That means something. I could go into policy or something else. And then kind of after I went away, I came back and thought, oh, I should get admitted. Like I should complete the process and at least have that mm. up my sleeve. And I'm sure there are so many people who have thought like this, I'll just do this bit. Like, this is exactly this my story. <laughs> so I remembered where I was going. After I finished my honours, I went overseas and lived in China for a couple of years. And then I came back to Australia and I was like, I should get admitted. Yeah. And then yeah. five years later, like, I was a lawyer. 
Yeah. Like, yeah. and had been a lawyer for five years. And I was like, what? Yeah. I was just getting this piece of paper because I yeah. did the degree, so I may as well do it because otherwise, well, I've got it now and I yeah. may as well practice and... Yeah, and is I, it a waste of time if I don't? Exactly. Mm. I think that's it. I think it's the that's a big part of it that I've invested all this time and energy, emotional, physical, every type of energy into this process. Um, and I did my articles uh, with Legal Aid, and you know, I thought I knew about. Um, certain things about the world and such and how the world worked and stuff. But I think it was the first time I probably properly got insight into my own privilege and how lucky I had been with certain things in my life. And, you know, you can see how easily people's lives get derailed by certain things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I did a lot of... Um, after I did my articles and got admitted, I practised in criminal law first. And with criminal law, you can really see in a lot of cases how someone's life has just taken a turn for a worse and then it snowballs and then, Mm -hmm. you know, how poverty becomes entrenched, how mental illness is such a barrier to participation, how, you know, consistent negative treatment by the police because of race or whatever just derails a life, all these things. And... You know, I – it was interesting because you'd have clients and sometimes they would, you know, miss appointments as people do kind of thing. And you'd be like, oh, gosh, why couldn't you just get to this appointment? And, you know, you start to examine your own um, privilege and how easy it is to do certain things. And, you know, I can buy a bus ticket. I can – fill up a car with petrol I have a car I you know all the I have the literacy skills to be able to work out what bus I need to get and what train I then need to get at what time to make that appointment on time um all of these things that if your life has been um diverted in any way um you just you just don't get those skills you know I just remember I got a schooling from my clients, all of my clients, um, about the realities of the world. And, you know, I realised how much my parents had put in to make sure that we had every opportunity we possibly could uh, and how important it was. So, you know, I learnt far more from representing my clients than I ever did at law school. Um, I also have worked in criminal law at legal aid mm-hmm. and um i often felt like i had more in common with our clients mm. than i did with my colleagues mm. um and i was always like does anyone know has anyone noticed yet that i'm only <laughs> like two bad decisions away from being one yes. of these people yes. like has anyone know- i'm eligible for legal aid yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> absolutely yeah. and and this is the thing law is oh, now you're gonna get me on the rant um <laughs> Law is such a privileged space. It actively excluded for so long certain types of people. You could only, if you were white and of a certain background and you had a certain amount of money and education and standing, you could go into law. And then gradually, you know, that kind of got chipped away and maybe people from, you know, with not as much money or maybe you got a scholarship or something and then maybe we'll let in women and, you know, then the legal barriers got 
we remove to prevent people from entering, but not the structural barriers. Mm-hmm. And so you have this massive chasm generally between the lawyer and the client and the lived experience that a client has of the systems and how they work is not held in the same regard as the knowledge that a lawyer has of those systems that they've learned from arm's length at a very detached kind of way. And what happens, and this has been my passion and fascination for ages, what happens when that lived experience comes into the workplace as a lawyer? What happens when a lawyer brings in their own lived experience of the very issues that clients generally face? So, you know, for me, um, experience racism, experience a whole range of things, what does it mean for me to potentially represent another, say, anyone who's experienced that sort of stuff? Um, what does it mean for me to represent, say, uh, another woman of colour in a racism discrimination case? Like mm. what does that bring into the knowledge and how does that fundamentally change your approach to things as a lawyer? And like there's this great um, Hawaiian um, academic, um, Mari Matsuda, and she writes eons ago. I wish I'd read it when I was at law school. Um, it's called When the First Quail Calls. And it's about having multiple conscience, consciousness. What what's that word? Consciousnesses. When you have multiple awarenesses, <laughs> um, and you come in as a lawyer, so you're coming in as a student, but you're also bringing with you your gender, your your race, your ethnicity, your cultural identity, and also your lived experience, and how that all plays out when you're a law student and she writes it from the perspective of a, a woman of colour sitting in a, um, a a criminal law subject and, um, you know, they're talking about um, a defendant who's been charged with sexual assault and, you know, how that case will play out. And so many people, no, she's sitting there wondering, is anyone else thinking about this like I am, that women of colour are more likely to be victims of sexual violence than white women, that there's a greater um, prosecution rate of men of colour, black men, brown men, as um, offenders than there are of white men, like that systems are perpetuated deliberately against our communities and such, or are they just purely thinking about this is the law and Mm. how the law works? And how the law affects this one case and this one person. Yes, yep. Yeah, and I think the thing that I struggle with in terms of bringing your lived experience as a lawyer when dealing with clients is that um, so often I conceptualised my experience as a family violence lawyer as just I was there to give someone one positive experience and one positive interaction with someone in an otherwise incredibly disappointing system. Yep. But that's not enough. Mm. It's not enough. And and then and then to be honest, maybe I'm setting that person up to fail because like I I might do that on this one one occasion where I have the capacity and have the time and all of that kind of thing because I'm not perfect, obviously. But then what if the next person doesn't carry that across? And what if we then it, do, it doesn't matter because we go into a courtroom and the judge or magistrate, I've, I've spent two hours with this person talking them 
to them in a very particular way, in a very human way, and then we go into a courtroom and it's completely different. And we're standing up and we're bowing and we're speaking of ourselves like, oh, friend of the court and all this kind of bullshit, yep. which is so incredibly alienating to, mm. to be honest, to the lawyers mm-hmm. who are part of the system, let alone the clients. Yep. It's really hard. Yep. It's, I remember someone saying, you know, you could walk into – you walk into a medical, like a hospital, a hundred years ago, and you walk into one today, and you can see just what the difference is, like how much things have evolved and changed. You could walk into a courtroom a hundred years ago, and probably most things would be the same. You would still be where you sat, on what side of the table, how you address the court. A lot of the legal, you know, definitions and such haven't changed. Like it movement in the law is so slow and it's yeah because you see all the you know the inclusion and the diversity and the la 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 conversations that happen and you know all these people of color and aboriginal lawyers are, are invited into these spaces and they're meant to be bringing their identity, but hell no, don't bring your identity. Don't bring any of that <laughs> yeah. shit in here. So, like, you know, yeah. just, you know, we, you know, want you to make our glossy magazines look good, but we actually don't want to change this space. Mm. And we don't want to make it safe mm. for you. Yeah. Well, we, we don't want to feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Like, mm. Yes. Is the problem. Yes. Yep. And so then it becomes the role of people of colour to make white people feel comfortable. Yeah. In and to places. educate and to, you know, have people, you know, vampire off their lived experiences <laughs> and, you know. <laughs> well, it's quite peculiar that the that the problem of a uh, workplace not being diverse or culturally safe or whatever sits with the well, the people of colour. Yeah. Yep. When it's like, oh, who, who made it like this? I think mm. it was white people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. So is there anything that gives you hope? Like you've been in this space for 20 years. <laughs> there must be something that, that keeps you going. I think having that greater um, focus on lived experience, that you can now talk about these things without so many, as many people freaking out. There are always people who are going to freak out, but – you know, I did a, I did a speech the other night um, for the Victorian Bar Association for the launch of their Reconciliation Action Plan and I centred it around historically excluded voices and the importance of bringing them into the conversation and the importance of realising that people were excluded from public discourse and participation for very particular deliberate reasons and people don't get that as part of the Australian nation-building experience, that Aboriginal people were deliberately excluded um, from all opportunities that that were possible and, and you know, their labour used to, to, you know, to build this country without mm-hmm. any value put to it. And then, you know, we had things like the White Australia policy that, again, actively excluded certain people um, from this country. And what that means to the psyches, not only of 
what it means to the lives of Aboriginal people and people of colour in this country and their experiences, but what it means to the psyches of white people and how it, you know, and the idea that colonisation didn't just happen to Aboriginal people. Colonisation happened to white people to their benefit. Mm. And I think that's the big part that people just do not get and then do not understand how, you know, colonisation has entrenched such disadvantage, such poverty for so many people. And then you look around the world and you see the experiences of other people who've had their lands colonised and you think there was such a recipe there, like Mm. such a playbook on how to deliberately do this stuff. Sorry, I think you talked about hope. (laughs) I've just gone (laughs) down. You don't have to have hope. (laughs) Honestly, sometimes I just – I don't. I despair. I – remember as a teenager, like, you know, having a shitty experience at school and something. And I'm sure if I stopped and really thought, I could recall every single racist experience in my life because it's like a paper cut of to course. your soul, you know. And I remember thinking, oh, God, one day something's things have got to get better. Surely people will get better. And sometimes I just think, no, things are just still crap. And, yeah. um, you know, I... You know, you hear some of our elders talk about what they've, you know, the stuff that they went through, um, you know, people who lived with under permit systems, people who were stolen and people who were, you know, had their wages stolen, who, you know, people who work in community and have worked in community for so long and they continue to work and they continue to believe in the strength of our of our mob, I think that's what gives me hope. What's that saying? The fact that black people, Aboriginal people, brown people don't want, you know, aren't calling out and out for justice, you know, that reconciliation is still a conversation. Like it just says how much people want to try and make things better. Like it's, I don't know. Yeah, I don't think I, sometimes I'm not hopeful. Mm. Um, but then I see sometimes, you know, an Aboriginal flag if, somewhere that I wouldn't have expected it or someone will tell me about their kids learning about something about NAIDOC week or something and, you know, stuff gives me hope when I see how many Aboriginal women are in parliament, in the federal parliament and mm. that I'm sitting here having this cool podcast with you two lovelies. Like mm. that gives me hope, mm. you know, that we can create these spaces and talk and and have people like us feel safe in them. You know? mm. And that's what's the most important to us. Mm. Yeah, for sure. How do you, given that you've, you really have focused in your career on lived experience mm. and the importance of that. So how is it now that you're the commissioner for Aboriginal children and young people and you're essentially the boss? It's that necessity to bring the voices of young Aboriginal people and children into the conversation. Um, You know, last year the commission released Our Youth Our Way, which was an investigation, an inquiry into the the criminal legal, youth criminal legal system uh, and the experiences of Aboriginal children and young people in that system and their voices centred throughout. Um, And... You know, there's an amazing 
Um, you know, I see work by the Koori Youth Council, amazing piece from a few years ago called Nagaji, which is Hear Me in, in Woiwurrung, I believe, and how that centred the voices of three young people and their experiences. And it's it's really that thing of of these kids have direct experience of what is going on in these systems. They know what they need in their lives. They know the things that they want. You know, they want to see culture play strong in their lives. They want to have connection with family. They want to be respected. You know, they want to be able to go into places and be proud and not question that they're Aboriginal. You know, they they want to, you know, they want people to help. They want people to support and not reduce them down to one set of actions um, and have that label them for the rest of their lives. So what's really exciting to me and what I want to do much more of is is keep recentering that voice, keep close that gap between the people who make the decisions and the lawmakers who generally don't have that lived experience and the people who live it day to day, um, the kids, the young people, their families, their communities. And you know, how do you get that direct line of communication? How do you get that direct inf- informing of, of, of laws and such? Because half the reason why, you know, laws so disproportionately impact on certain groups is because they're not made by those groups and they're not made for those groups, you know, um, there are so many different laws that impact so badly on on Aboriginal families, on Aboriginal women, children, um, because they just simply don't take into account their experiences when they make this legislation. Um, you know, it, we we rely on, you know, there's a very particular type of experience that is um, in majority in our places of decision making, you know, whether it's courts or, or parliament or policy lawmaking rooms or whatever there is. Um, and if that's the perspective that's creating law, then it's not taking into account a whole plethora, a whole diversity of other experiences. And so this is why you get these crappy outcomes. And so I think for me, you know, I get to speak in spaces where those kids don't get to speak. Um, I get to have conversations with people in roles that those kids won't get to. If I can share their stories and or get their own voices into those spaces, um, you know, I think I'll be doing all right. But that, that's really what my focus is. In your role as the commissioner... Have you been having conversations with your mum and how does she, I guess I'm also curious like what she thinks of you being in this role? She was hugely excited. Um, We probably haven't, we probably haven't had a chance to specifically talk about the ins and outs but through COVID and being able to spend, you know, in, in lots of ways for me COVID was a, was you know not a blessing, but you know it gave me the opportunity to spend a more, lot more time with my folks. And um, you know, I think as your parents get older and you know they get more fluid with the way they talk and such, and the memories flow a bit, you know, faster and freer. And um, 
I learned a lot about both my parents uh, in the last two years and being able to spend, you know, a few days at a time with them. And so I learned a lot more about my mum and her experiences that maybe she, look, I honestly don't know whether she had told me before or whether I was simply being mature enough to take it all in and listen and be, you know, a good a good daughter and properly listen and such. Um, but, you know, she talked about different things and experiences and, and such. And I think the thing that, you know, knowing my mum's experience and that she was always with family wherever she was and that her mum worked really hard to keep her with her but she couldn't always and mum understood that but it doesn't mean it hurt any less, you know, being left at a relative's place, you know, or something. And But the fact of growing up with family and with culture around you and, you know, she would talk about her Auntie Bluebell teaching her different words and showing her different plants and stuff and, you know, that is what's kept her strong and... This is why our kids need to be strong in culture and this is why it's so important to work. You know, re- removing kids from their families must be absolute last resort. Mm-hmm. You know, there needs to be work with the families, supporting them. Um, and, you know, if, if removal has to happen, we have to be working from the word go to get those children back to their parents and supporting those parents or their aunties and their uncles and grandparents and such. And I think, you know, it's Aboriginal way as it is in most, not most, sorry, is it is in lots of non-white cultures and communities mm-hmm. and Indigenous yep. communities that you're raised with a big family. You're raised with aunties and uncles and nans and pops and everyone around you and everyone has a hand in your upbringing. And, um, you know, then you get imposed on our communities this very um, nuclear family, Eurocentric attitude to family and child raising where it's only the parents who do the raising of kids and the role and the importance of the aunties and uncles and grandparents gets erased and suddenly it becomes a weakness to be able to, 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 to ask your parents to help out or to ask your aunt, your sister or your brother or whatever to help out Suddenly that's, oh, you can't look after your kids, you know. It's like, no, actually that's community cultural strength mm-hmm. right there. That's not a negative thing. And, you know, we know when kids, if they are removed, they thrive so much better when they're connected to community, um, when they have still have continuing relationships with their family, um, if they're placed with a family member. Um, all of these things is what keeps kids strong. So, you know, I, I look at my mum as a direct example of that and, you know, she didn't have much at all growing up, nothing. And yet she, because her identity was strong, she knew who her parents were, she knew who her nan and pops were and, and who her aunties and uncles were. She knew she was yorta yorta. She knew all the connections and stuff. So that's what keeps us strong. You know, if you've got that identity front and centre, you know, that's, again, at that very crucial age of child development when you're, you've already got so much other stuff going on, let alone where do I fit, you Mm -hmm. know. Um, It's just so important to get right. And those, 
I'm thinking about this through like a Maori lens as mm. well, mm. is that pre-colonial family structures and um, community structures were structured around childcare. And so if, like in Maori dim, if I'm if I'm introducing myself in Maori, um, I start with my iwi, so that's my tribe, and then the sub-tribe, and then I talk about my family because my iwi is the most important cultural group that is going to catch me if yeah. I fall. Yep. And like what from what you were saying, it's it's very similar. Yeah. And so we had these structures in place to support parents and to support children before yep. colonialism. And then this like white man's view of family was yep. pushed onto indigenous cultures around the world. Yep. And then the structures and the systems that they that we would use to take care of each other have been taken away from us and then you just have kids being snatched up. Yep. Yep. It's a recipe for disaster. Absolutely. And you you think about, you know, I was talking before about, you know, sometimes when you represent a client with criminal matters and you can see exactly where things have gone wrong in their life and the things I was talking about of illness or, you know, a parent not being able to work or all sorts of things. These are the exact same things that were targeted for Aboriginal communities through colonisation and, and policies, you know, will, you know, dispossess people of the land. So the way that they, all their resources, the way they kept healthy, the way they kept strong, mm-hmm. the way they provided for each other, we'll take that away first. And then we will we'll start saying, no, you can't practice culture or language. So how are you meant to communicate with one another? You know, then we'll start ripping apart families. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, we'll start pushing, you know, children into horrible spaces where they'll be traumatised and and abused in every possible way and actually deliberately break people. Mm -hmm. You know, all of these very deliberate actions that were done for so long and then – the powers that be said, oh, no, everyone's equal before the law, <laughs> so you should just all be able to just get on with it now. It's like never mind the inherent underlying and rampant racism that prevented people from taking up jobs or working alongside Aboriginal people, um, that prevents Aboriginal people from getting houses, that prevents Aboriginal people from participating in sport, you know, without being racially vilified, you know. Never mind all of that stuff. Um, <laughs> it's just, and then people will still be like, "Oh, I don't get it." Like, <laughs> what do you mean you get a scholarship? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What scholarship, bud? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Where, where's yeah, where's my shiny car that you're talking about? Like, <laughs> just it's it, it's it's diabolical how much um, needs to be learnt by this country. Um, it really is. Diabolical. So in talking about all of this, I'm curious about what your connection is with your mum's side of the family and the yorta yorta part of you and who who you are in the world. Yeah. Like I said before, my dad was a very strict, kind of complicated person um, and we didn't get to have a lot of communication or contact with my mum's side of the family when we were growing up. So... Um, that's probably all come a lot later as we've gotten older and such and connected with community and whatnot. And, um, but also understanding that, um, mum was the oldest of 
So mum's the only child from her two parents together. Uh, so she has lots of um, siblings on her mother's side and on her father's side. And um, some of those kids were stolen. Some of those kids were adopted out. Um, and some of them mum didn't get to meet or, or reconnect with until she was in her 40s. You know, I remember, I remember the first time she got to meet our auntie Pauline, her younger sister on her dad's side, and she was in her 40s. And, you know, that's a story for so many Aboriginal people um, that because of stolen policies and, and actions and lots of things, um, yeah, families didn't get to connect. Some never got to connect before, you know, parents passed away or siblings passed away. or So, you know, for, for mum as well it was – her also finding and reconnecting with people as well. But my sisters and I and my mum, we all work in Aboriginal affairs in, in, in these sorts of spaces and stuff. So we get to work direct with our communities. And, you know, as a Yorta Yorta person, we've got so many amazing, you know, like I said before, Auntie Molly Dyer who, you know, was um, set up VACA and, um, you know, my Dad's first cousin, Annie Lois Peeler, who heads up Warrawa College out in Hillsville, an amazing Aboriginal education space for Aboriginal women and young girls. And, you know, there are such deadly people, you know, you know that we're connected to. And, um, you know, I just always grew up knowing that I was Aboriginal, knowing that I was Yorta Yorta and, and um, not necessarily getting to grow up in community, but still always you know, that's our heritage, that's our that's our background and stuff. So, you know, and it was that affirmation from my mum always growing up, you know, calling us a, like a stay in jewel or, you know, just, you know, growing us up with certain words and stuff and trying to keep connection and, um, yeah, again, you know, even though we didn't get to grow up community, we still knew who we were and that was really strong, yeah. Which was so evident from... Like you telling your mum's story, I guess, was that you said like her identity and her sense of identity was always really strong. Mm. So it's really nice that she passed that on yeah. to her daughters. Yeah. And I also think when you were talking about children, especially Aboriginal children, having access to community and language or culture and that being really important during during the developmental stages of their lives – um, it's also important for people as adults, Absolutely. and and there's no, it's no less valid for you to maybe learn that as you are a little bit older than it would be for you to grow up. Absolutely, yeah, because you know if you've not had that growing up, you know there's such a hole for so many people. Um, you know, you look at the rates of illness you know, mental illness or, you know, physical illness among survivors of the stolen generation and their ancestors and such. And it's so significant, you know, identity is so, you know, identity and culture are protective fam factors, what we call protective factors for, for Aboriginal people. They keep us safe and strong, um, connected to, to each other. Um, you know, and this is just something that, colonisers, I think, probably did understand, you know, 
That's why they broke it. Yeah, yeah exactly. It was the project. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, break those ties. Break that connection. Um, and, you know, let's just see what happens, you know. And, and like I said before, the fact that it was tried and tested in so many other places um, shows that they felt it worked. Their little handbook. Yeah. But it didn't work because <laughs> we're still here. Yes, Mina. Absolutely. And I think that's us for today. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. It's just been wonderful. Thank you so much. It's just it's just nice to sit with people who get it. And, you know, even though our backgrounds are so different, we get it. Like there's a connectiveness. And I think, you know, it's funny because when, when white people ask you, oh, where are you from? It's like, honestly, they're asking why are you as a brown person here in this space where we're all white? Like, why are you standing out? How did you get to be here? How are you in our space? Kind of thing. Mm. Whereas where a black or brown person goes, where are you from? Who's your mob? Kind of thing. It's a connection. It's a it's a point of, of yeah, it, it's connection. And, you know, I, one of the things I used to love about representing clients at Legal Aid was just the diversity of clients I would get and, you know, the clients um, of refugee backgrounds, you know, who, who'd come to Australia and such, they would, you know, you could see on their faces they were like, oh, it's a brown lawyer, she looks like us. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, and, um, and then you'd say, oh, my name's Mina. And then, <laughs> and, you know, Mina was, all I ever knew Mina as was an Indian name that no one else in Australia had um, growing up. And they would be like, oh, Mina is a this name or a that name and they would totally connect it to their culture and stuff because Mina is a very, like it's a it's a very easy sounding name and it comes across in lots of different cultures and stuff um, and it has lots and lots of different meanings and stuff depending where you are. But um, We have Mina yeah, in Persian. Yeah. Um, and so it was always a really lovely point of connection with with clients and you know, studying law and practicing law told you that you weren't meant to have your identity as part of your lawyering, but that was the highlight for me, making those connections with people. Yeah. So I thank you for the connections we've made. Thank you so much, Mina. Thank you. It's been <laughs> wonderful. Thank you. This podcast is hosted, edited and produced and all the other things by Kate Robinson and myself, Maria Birch-Mordunga. Just two wahani out here making a podcast. The music that you're listening to is by The Green Twins and this is their amazing song, Take It Slow. You can find it wherever you listen to your music. This work was developed on the lands of the Kulin Nation. And it was supported through the Maribyrnong City Council Community Grants Programme the Victorian government through Creative Victoria. And we also want to thank Auspicious Arts and Footscray Community Arts Centre for all of their help with our project. We love feedback and we love hearing from you. You can find us on Instagram at Being Biracial Podcast or send us an email at Being Biracial Podcast at gmail.com. We would also love it if you could leave us a review. That's the best way to support us at the moment. And if you like this episode, why not subscribe? Bye. Bye.